Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we are going to cover Netflix's The Crown, covering the life of Queen Elizabeth II. This is Season 2, Episode 2, entitled In the Company of Men. And first, let's begin with the Netflix synopsis. Elizabeth feels disconnected from Philip. Eden copes with an international pressure and ill health. An interview stirs up harrowing memories for Philip. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) They have a limited amount of characters. I think it covered it. I love that. Yeah. Like, Like every other episode of this show, our cold open is a black screen. And then we have a flintle which we've stolen from the West Wing Weekly. Um, It is a sound while we're looking at a black screen. And the sound we hear is birds. And they're tropical birds. And then suddenly we see Philip. He is in a Washington crosses the Delaware kind of pose. The Union Jack fluttering near him. And it turns out that he is in a boat, a dory for you nautical people. He's being <laughs> he's being rowed down a river with some other dories, all filled with military men in their naval uniforms and also some outrigger boats of the natives that live in the area. I use natives because that's the word that they use in this show. But like, I guess we should say the indigenous people. Correct. Like, <laughs> it is a very, it's a constant battle with that, actually. I know, it totally is. So Philip is inexplicably standing up. Now, is it maybe to get a better view? But what I think it is, is for the director to show us Philip in a sea of white uniforms. <laughs> I think that was merely a attention-getting posture. Um, so those outrigger boats are called Salaus, by the way. It's a traditional boat of Papua New Guinea. And the flag they are flying is called the White Ensign. It's flown by boats in the Royal Navy while they're underway. And one American ship, believe it or not, the USS Winston Churchill, but only on special occasions. And this ship, the Winston Churchill, is also the only American ship to have a Royal Navy officer permanently assigned to the ship. And the most recent one that I could find was a woman named Lindsay Sewell. So until March of this year, I'm not sure who replaced her. They usually work in two-year shifts, but there is literally a member of the Royal Navy and that flag on our boat, the USS Winston Churchill. Is that the weirdest thing? It is. <laughs> and throughout this first part, you see scenes of locals running to see the spectacle, you know, the the celebrations, etc. Um, and that kind of goes along with this next voiceover. I just wanted you to notice that Philip is the only one to take off his hat to greet, I assume, the leader of the locals that he's meeting. He's the only one to take off his hat in that whole company. Impressive. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to see a fountain pen being dipped into some ink and a piece of paper. And somebody begins to write a letter on a piece of very fancy stationery that says HM Yacht Britannia. It's Mike. And he is writing a letter about the first leg of their, what are we calling this? The magical mystery tour? The- sure. Dude's day out. Mike and Phil's excellent adventure. I like the last one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he's telling somebody via this letter about what they've done so far. And we see that on the screen. There are a couple of scenes that I really, really like. So Mike knows his boy. Philip doesn't like ceremonies and formal dinners. So what they've been having is these what they call small scale Olympics throughout 
all their travels, which I thought was pretty cute. I don't know who is washing these uniforms. I imagine there's some poor sailor that's his whole job to like borax the crap out of everything. Borax is great, by the way, as I say, because chef coats. Before we switch to black at the house, yes, I was a fan of that chemical, whatever it is. Um, the tug of war, which of course they lost. Yay. Or pretended to lose. I don't really know. And then the boxer was pulling no punches. And I hope that guy's okay. <laughs> but what I thought was hilarious was the cricket, um, which is, I get you, inexplicable. I was looking up the rules to see if I could even understand it. But they're like, okay, you know, we're going to get our revenge in cricket because frankly, it's never been seen before anywhere. That guy hit the local man right in the shoulder. And in baseball, that would get you a walk at the very least, right? Yeah. But in cricket, I think that's your tough luck. They can hit you if they want, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't understand the rules of cricket. And there's another rule that the batsman gets five runs. I guess that's five points. I don't know. If the ball hits someone's helmet that is laying on the ground and not being worn. What? <laughs> it is like, like Calvin Ball. <laughs> you didn't touch the sorry tree and run around 27th base five times. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah, they were totally being guys, right? Completely competitive. But I have to say, Philip Shirley has learned a lot since his uh, African tour of 52 when he insulted the man in the hat. You know, and he's like, nice hat. It's a crown. That was first season. You oh, know? yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's come a long way. He's a lot more relaxed and he's not saying as many stupid things, I guess. So he's got some measure of respect for other cultures now. So I thought that was really good. Now, this isn't the first one on his tour. He talked about going several other places before this. So, mm -hmm. yeah, they've traveled quite a distance already. And so Mike's voice is reading this letter and it's all kind of a travel log about their adventures. And suddenly the voice changes to another man. And we see that it's a man in a club. There's pretty waitresses walking about that are getting their fannies slapped. Men are being very boisterous while he reads this letter. And that's when it turns dirty. The casualness with which one guy just rests his hand on a waitress's bum. It's sort of shocking. It, it is obviously part of the job to pretend to be okay with all this I have to call it blatant abuse that these ladies are taking. I mean, they all have smiles on their faces except our hero waitress, who I guess we're just going to call cake waitress because that's the first thing we see her carrying is cake. Um, her face does not look happy, though it does look like Kelly McDonald to me. Do you know who that is? Train spotting or um, Gosford Park? Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was looking at her and I'm going, I've seen her before. And I looked up her IMDb and I'm like, I don't know who she is. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's not her, but it does look like her. And a few things in this letter stood out to me when it got gross. The men are expected to indulge, got some raucous laughter, um, how they rated the beauty of women in different countries, which is just a fool's game, number one. And then also this 90 percent of the officers with us are married and would not thank me for divulging their secret or whatever, something like that. All gross, just gross. <laughs> yes, very gross. I do want to go back and say that the cake waitress, her credited name is Lily, but we never hear anybody call her that. Oh, okay. I like cake waitress better. I do too. Describes her. We see Philip and Mike at a luau of some sort, and the women of the tribe are trying to bring them into dancing, and 
bring them into something else as they lead them away into the darkness of the jungle. Now, I will say we do see Mike go in. We do not see Philip. It is ambiguous, and I'm sure it's on purpose. Oh, yeah, because you're supposed to walk away going, did he or didn't he? Right. Oh, definitely. And they did a really good job throughout this episode, I think, of making that point blatantly obvious. The last line, though, really gets the boys all excited. And I have to wonder, you know, where did they get this from? What happens on tour stays on tour. (laughs) I I know. Maybe Las Vegas took it from the Thursday Club. Uh, And then we have our opening sequence, the Molten Lava Crown. And as you have probably been all the way through season one and season two, you will welcome the skip intro (laughs) at this point. You know what? When I watch it on my laptop, I don't have that. So I think I need to like take the app off and then reinstall it. I've had it before and it just seems to disappear. So I need that. Badly. Okay, so when we come back from the opening sequence, we open in London. There's a protest going on about the Suez Canal situation. And one of our old friends, Lord Dickey, needs to drive through this whole protest. Oh, he is taking it in, too. There is a man giving a speech surrounded by hundreds of shouting protesters. And his basic point is, we've trusted the ruling class. And how do they repay our trust? By taking us into an illegal war under false pretenses. This is the Suez Canal um, that in the last episode, Anthony Eden had a really botched plan to retake that ended up landing the country in some trouble politically and economically. So it's not good. One of the people in the crowd, in fact, bangs on the window before the policemen get a hold of him and yells, murderers, bastards. And Dickie kind of just sits there, like stoic, I guess. I don't know. Although maybe slightly amused. I don't know. His expression wasn't what, like, I would be terrified. I think he has a bubble of invincibility around him. It doesn't affect him. He's only by class associated, you know, and family associated with this whole debacle, right? He could pick either side, I suppose. Well, he might be glad that someone else has got a bad scandal because, you know, he's known as the man who lost India. So maybe he's like, hooray. (laughs) I've been bumped out of number one. Eden lost Egypt. Neener, neener. (laughs) As this scene kind of closes, you see some crumpled newspapers, a couple of them being kind of trampled by the protesters. And the two major headlines you see are, when should Eden go? And then another one is, Britain humiliated. Yep, that pretty much sums up their feelings, right? Right. Well, it seems that Dickie is going, can we just call him Dickie instead of Lord Mountbatten? Sure. Because I just think that fits him so much better. (laughs) Dickie is going to lunch with the queen and the queen mom, where for some reason he feels it necessary to explain the current situation with the Suez Canal with Elizabeth. Because it is necessary for the audience. (laughs) Couldn't she just be sitting there with a look like, yeah, dude, I know this. I'm like in charge. But she instead asks him a question. Peter Morgan, who wrote the whole show, he's the showrunner. It's his idea. I mean, he could have worked a little bit better on this scene, I think. So many times, um, even still, now the first season was really, really bad for this, but during this first part, it almost seems like Elizabeth is still reacting. Not always. And she comes out of there that little hole once in a while of reaction and actually goes on the offense. But for the most part, things are happening around her. Mm -hmm. I accept that. I'm not buying it in the scene because she actually has to quit. I mean, he's talking about the uh, economic drain on the country and how the price of petrol is going up and they're going to have to start rationing it and that this is the worst week for the country since 1939. And she's just 
you know, instead of nodding her head in agreement, like, yeah, I know that she's just looking like that's so shocking. I, it was just one scene, just a little, I guess, critique. And then um, Dickie says a very direct thing. He says, the peace left by your dear papa is gone. Also, the country's reputation for fair dealing. And I said to myself in the notes, like, really? Fair dealing? I want to take a poll of the people living in your colonial states. Let's start with America, if you want. (laughs) Historically, I don't know that you have a reputation for fair dealing, though, except in your own mind. Yeah, I have to say, too, that most times that we see the queen mother in this whole situation, she's eating or drinking. <laughs> Seems to be all she does. I have details on that later. Actually, let me tell you now so you can watch okay. the rest okay. of the show with this in mind. I just want you to watch the prop work pretty much from now on because they are right on target. Somebody knows this. Okay, so the queen mom evidently in real life was a very heavy drinker. Now, this is a typical day at noon. She has wine mixed with gin, then has red wine with lunch, multiple glasses, port at the end. At six o'clock, she has two martinis. With dinner, she has two glasses of champagne. And afterward, there might be a nightcap. So that is seven to eight drinks daily. And she lived to be 101. Yeah, (laughs) body by liquor. We have our lunch interrupted by a footman who's telling us that, is it a footman? I don't know the jobs. Red coat or black coat? Black coat. Um, Then he is probably a butler. Okay. Telling Elizabeth that the Duke of Edinburgh is on the phone. And Elizabeth perks right up. And Dickie stands up when Elizabeth does. And I always like that little bit of courtliness because I was evidently born in the wrong century. It doesn't really mean anything. She doesn't even see it. But I like that he makes the effort. (laughs) (laughs) He has kind of got a lot more dimension in this season than he did previously, I think, because he has a nice side to him. He really does. One more prop question. If they keep setting just this one end of the table forever for every breakfast, are they not going to end up with one jacked up table end? Or do they flip it around like you do your mattress? I don't know because, I mean, obviously I'm a person who doesn't have maintenance retainers for all of my furniture needs, but I'm just telling you there's nothing you can do after a while, right? (laughs) I guess not. I don't know. Maybe they go to the other end sometimes. Is this a left end or a right end? Oh, I don't know. Surprise me. (laughs) That's hilarious. And so I don't know why that was getting in my mind. It's not pertinent to anything, but there you go. (laughs) Well, Elizabeth is really excited to take this phone call. And this sets up a theme, I think, that runs throughout this entire episode. Um, She can't hear him. She gets to the phone. She's like, hello. And he's like, I can't hear you. It's one of those, can you hear me now conversations? Mm -hmm. And they just can't communicate. I loved how happy they both are at the beginning, though. They both have those little anticipatory smiles on their faces, but then they both get so disappointed. Yeah. (laughs) Philip's even like, damn telephones. And then his helpful friend Mike says, well, that's why I don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) Mike is just such a stand-up guy. (laughs) We're back on the boat. It's okay that the phone call didn't go through because Philip has to address the entire crew and give them a speech about their upcoming plans. So he's got to go. He's got to go do a thing, a little thing called the Melbourne Olympics 1956. So he's got to go do that thing. And so he's going to have to leave them, but he can't wait till they pick him up again and they can continue their guy adventure. And you can tell through this speech how much they love him and they look up to him. It is a shame that he doesn't have that in his real life. I felt like, God dang, couldn't the queen just let him stay in the Navy? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he does a great job. I think he's a great communicator with this particular audience. 
And I, I just laughed because you said they look up to him because he's like on a higher deck than the rest of the crew. <laughs> and they are literally looking up to him. But he like throws in a lot of jokes. They've been on this adventure for adventure. They keep calling it their adventure for two weeks and they've gone over 20,000 miles. Right. That, that's crazy. He feels that the reason he's going ashore and he has to go do this thing on Australia is an attempt to repair the reputation of our country that's being ruined by politicians. Yeah, that got a big laugh. And then so did the sports jokes, because you just have to throw in some football jokes and get everybody on your side. Right, Phil? <laughs> so I thought that was good. He it was very open with him at the end that it's been wonderful for him to be back at sea. He feels like he's in his element. It was just a very touching speech. And it really made me feel for the life he could have had had King George not died so early. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Philip's parting words to them are behave yourselves, keep fit. Don't drink all the bloody beer. I love that. I know. The next thing we see, we're on the plane with Mike and the Duke, and he gives him a card that has a generic speech on it that he can just repeat over and over again. Because Mike's official job is he's his personal secretary. We have to remember he's not just his you know, social wingman. He has a reason for being there. And they mentioned the schedule is yucky and boring, but I mean, some of it's yucky and boring. He's at a formal dinner giving that speech. You do see it. But like, you also see things like he's riding horses. He's in the middle of nowhere on top of a bus looking at the sunset. And, you know, he loves some of this, the wild parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't look too happy when he's in a factory getting a tour. Throughout this episode, Mike has that movie camera that Elizabeth gave to Philip. Now, that camera doesn't keep doing it, but the main camera, you know, the crown's camera, keeps focusing on this one blonde lady with a camera, and I'm smelling trouble the whole time. <laughs> yes, and we have a voiceover here of Philip giving that speech that he's going to repeat over and over again at this very fancy dinner, and that woman is there, and she's standing over with the press corps as she was on the press corps jeep. I mean, they're being followed by the press this whole time, and she's making googly eyes at the Duke, and the Duke is making googly eyes at her while he's giving this speech. So after dinner, Philip and Mike are walking down a hallway and Mike is kind of giving him the 411 on who that woman was. She's an Australian journalist. Her name is Helen King and she wants to meet with the Duke. And surprisingly, the Duke accepts, even though he said no interviews. His guidar tells him she's a friend, not a foe. Yes. Mike, the wingman is going to set it up like it, he thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. An interview with air quotes, we can safely assume his meaning (laughs) is clear and gross, by the way. And Helen King, the age that she writes for is a real newspaper. And at this time was sort of recovering under new management from being kind of an old fashioned newspaper. But this Helen King, who I am 98% sure is fictional, represents the modern approach the new owners are taking with this newspaper. Um, They're kind of unafraid to get right in there and, and ask the tough questions. And I mean, we're at the very beginning of this. I'm going to say women were just now escaping the society pages all over the world for the most part. In fact, there is um, a lady named Betty Osborne. It was a pretty big deal that she was entrusted with a giant responsibility for a giant paper to cover the Melbourne Olympics. And also, here's a little aside for you. You know how there's American girl dolls? There is also... Australian girl dolls. I actually have no idea if they're the same company or not, but they're the same format. There's a little story or a series of stories, and then there's dolls and accessories and blah, blah, blah. There is an Australian girl doll 
named Lena, who is a reporter in the 50s in Australia. That is cool. Okay, so <laughs> we are back in England, and Elizabeth is watching on a television set in a very fancy room her husband open up the Olympics. She's watching the news coverage of it. It looks like a mix of modern and archival footage. It's funny, when there's a, like a long shot and the crowd, it actually looks like maybe that's real footage. And he looks happy, says the Queen Mother. And then she says kind of under her breath, for once. <laughs> <laughs> and then Elizabeth acknowledges, yes, very happy. But there's a subtext, very happy without me, kind of. I think she, it, you know, she's happy that he's happy, but also kind of wistful. Like it's not happening with her in the room. It's only when he's away. And then, of course, the queen mom, who has no sense of subtlety at all, is like, I always knew it was a good idea to let him shine alone. She wants total credit for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and coldly, the queen says, yes, thank you, mummy. And then um, right as we close out that scene, the Melbourne Olympics releases 5,000 pigeons. So I really hope everybody has their hats on because they've been <laughs> in a cage a long time. Funny. We'll, um, on our show notes for this episode, um, we'll put the actual movie reel from the Olympics. It's out there. It's so cool that we can actually look at the real footage of these things happening. Yeah. Yeah. So we always do that. If, even if we don't mention it, you might want to take a look at our show notes. Um, to take a look at those because it's pretty interesting. So then we see that Zephyr car from before. I just love the fact that it's called a Zephyr. Um, it's Mrs. Parker from before. What is she doing? Well, she's meeting with a lawyer about divorcing her husband. And she gets some hard truths about the divorce law in Britain. The lawyer tells her that he's going to need to have evidence of one of the big three, adultery, unreasonable behavior, or insanity. And she's like, okay, I think I can do adultery. He definitely did that. And he's like, you need to get me evidence. Well, Mike works for the Duke of Edinburgh as his private secretary. So this might be difficult, she says. And you can see the freaking light bulb of gossip right over that guy's head. And he paternalistically and kind of grossly. I mean, you don't realize how far you've come, I think, until you see things like this. But he says, a divorce can leave a woman isolated. You should probably just stick it out. He says, grass is rarely greener. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Go put on something pretty and make yourself desirable to your husband. I have to say, I have a friend that in the 1990s was told this advice by a... Uh, paternal figure in her life when she found out her husband was cheating on her. Seriously. Like, she's not the one wrong here. It's kind of crazy. We've come a long, I know, we've come a long way, but that thinking, I think, is still out there. Crazy. Well, the second she crosses the plane of his door, um, he picks up the phone. Now, who is he calling? We just don't know. But he's calling someone immediately, and um, mischief is afoot. Definitely afoot. The next thing we see is Anthony Eden is meeting with his doctor slash drug dealer <laughs> who is shocked that Eden has maxed out on his phenobarbital, which is what we call it. They called it uh, phenobarbiton. I think it's just a cultural thing. Yes. And he's also taking patadine, an opioid pain reliever like um, Demerol. Phenobarbitone is a barbiturate and benzedrine, of which he is a known addict, is an amphetamine. I was trying to figure out what they were trying to treat in the first place. Do you have any details on that? Because I, I know do. how he died of liver cancer. 
Right. But in 1953, he had had a gallbladder operation and the doctor slipped while he was doing the surgery and severed his bile duct, which led to an infection and hospitalization. We had seen that in season one. He had come back from his rest. He was supposedly recuperated. But during that recovery time is when he got addicted to pain medication. That's real, people. It really happened. And someone said, I wonder if this affected his behavior during the Suez crisis. Um, Yes. (laughs) One of the side effects for, and it's a commonly reported symptom, is that it impairs judgment. It causes paranoia and it could make the patient lose contact with reality. And this is the prime minister and people know this and they're allowing this to happen. The next thing we're going to see is Anthony having one of his weekly meetings with the queen where he's trying to tell her and make her believe (laughs) that his doctors have insisted he take a leave of absence to someplace rather exotic. Yes, it looks weird. You know, she asks him, oh, your family's estate is in County Durham. You're always at the end of the telephone. And he said, actually, I will be in Jamaica. And her disbelief is palpable on her face. I looked at this and it's not so much Jamaica in particular. He needed to, I believe, get far away from people because I think he was going to try to detox in those three weeks. And Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond books, had lent the prime minister his villa called Goldeneye in Jamaica. So it's not so much that the doctor told him to go to Jamaica, but a friend's house became available, I think. She is so upset, although she's, you know, straight backed and she's trying not to, you know, let it show on her face. But he's like, oh, there's people that are going to take care of everything in my absence. Basically, there's people that are going to clean up the mess that I created with the Suez Canal situation. He can't even meet her eye. Look at him. He can't even look her in the face. Nope. And he's laying it on heavy, you know. My doctors felt I was at the very limit of human endurance. Like, I'm such a strong man, but even the strongest man can't do this kind of thing. Crazy. I will tell you at home, Mrs. Eden in the news has been quoted as saying the Suez Canal has been running through my living room. So I believe there's also a significant amount of marriage stress as well as everything else. I actually can link you to a video where Mrs. and Mr. Eden are headed for Jamaica and the look on her face when he is talking about it is more like, God dang, the whole time. (laughs) You should see it. She is just like, get me that heck out of here. She's over it. And you know who else is over it is Elizabeth. She says it so politely, though. She always has to watch her words. I bet mm, if I were her, I'd have a pillow I'd scream in at night. (laughs) When Enid says, my doctor felt that my life might depend on it, she kind of gives him this look and says, what or what he would prescribe for the rest of us. And then she pushes a switch. So the bell to tell the footman to open the door has switched to a switch. And I didn't see that happen. Oh. It's now instead of that little ceramic bell that she used to ring to tell Mm -hmm. the footman to open the door, now it's a thing that goes eh, eh, eh. and we see later that it lights a little red light outside the door modern technology in buckingham palace gotta love it the next thing we're gonna see is some pretty blonde hair walking down a working class street i guess is a good way to describe it and she's confidently sauntering oh it's the cake waitress which i wrote or diagonally (laughs) (laughs) 
Because <laughs> to me, it really looks like, and I'm sure Diagon Alley was based on, you know, streets in London. So it's a big, full meta circle here. But if this is just outside her work, they are in Soho uh, in Old Compton Street because the Thursday Club was held in Wheeler's Restaurant. She has a sultry walk, doesn't she? Just like on an average day. Yeah, she's got a lot of confidence. And she's wearing this very adorable little hat. I don't even know what you call it. It's just really small. It was cute anyway. Outside of her business, Mrs. Parker ambushes her and she is telling her that she's going to need some evidence of her husband's infidelity and that the waitress should just cough it up for her. Don't you think that it's funny that the first question is, are you a reporter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure they've been told not to talk to reporters. And she's like, no, I'm a wife, my husband's name. And you can kind of see it in the waitress's eyes that she recognizes the name, but she says nothing. She plays this really cool. Mrs. Parker does not play it cool at all because when the waitress says, I I don't know who you're talking about. She doesn't even like keep buttering her up. She's like, oh, you know him. You're just his type. More flies, vinegar, honey. Hello. Well, she does make a go at appealing to the sisterhood. She says, I hope one day you get married and make a good choice. But if you meet a man who makes you unhappy, I would hope you could leave him easily and painlessly. And I am maybe reading too much into it, but I almost think that the waitress is expecting an angry wife, like, how dare you steal my husband? And this is a not the approach she was exactly ready for. Like, he causes me pain. I need help to leave him was not what she expected to come out of that wife's mouth. Okay. I can accept that. I will tell you, Cake Waitress does not want to be seen with her. They are right outside the restaurant. Now, true, the club is in a private room in the back, so maybe nobody up front will talk, but restaurants are gossip mills, and somebody might see her through those half-curtained windows, so she's very jumpy. Mrs. Parker fumbles just anxiously around to give her a card, you know, to contact if anything comes to mind. But yay, she had calling cards to give her. How many people have those now that aren't tied to their businesses? Jack Graham did. I did when I was a stay-at-home mom, but I never got one from somebody else. Mine said um, M-O-M, but it was in an angle that it could also say wow. Well, I don't remember what Jeff said. It said something like lightsabers handled, ice cream eaten, playgrounds taken. I don't know. It was like a whole bunch of crazy stuff. And then it had my phone number on it. Contact my secretary. Cute. We were going to a lot of playgrounds and it was like that mm-hmm. awkward moment like they really like each other. We should get together. And then you're just mm-hmm. like, here you go. No, that's exactly why I did it. So we go inside and Cake Waitress is going to work in the same dress, which is curious. But anyway, she's going back to work and a slap on her butt and some laughter by the onlookers are kind of making her have a think face on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all we see is her face changes. She's facing us, not the offenders, but something in her has shifted a little, I think. Well, of course, things can't be quiet in the gossip mill for very long. Martin Chartres, remember him from season one? He used to be Princess Elizabeth's private secretary until she was promoted to queen. And then he had to step back because of protocol reasons. Correct. Um, he is going to her current private secretary, Michael Adine, and his office to tell him that some reliable gossip that's filtered down to him. His sister-in-law had lunch with her aunt, who had just spent the weekend at a castle, which was owned by the tennis partner of the solicitor hired by Eileen Parker. <laughs> so Michael Adine's response to the latter that it's gone down this information, that's half of Britain already. Yeah. Okay, I have a movie reference for you. Buckle up, everybody. Here it goes. 
My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid who's going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. (laughs) Maybe we should be picking up on these because there was the Las Vegas commercial at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. What happens on tour stays on tour. And now there's Ferris Bueller. Maybe there's more Easter eggs like this that are tucked in here. We just have to find them. (laughs) Okay, Hmm. 80s kids, this is your game, man. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) They decide that it's probably infidelity, nothing specific, but they're getting close. And getting close means that Prince Philip and Parker who are founding members of this club, are going to be tarred with the same brush no matter what the real details are. And it looks bad. And it reflects poorly on the queen and the institution of the monarchy in general. So that's how serious this one marriage is. So they they decide to just keep their eye on it and keep their ear down and see what happens. Speaking of Mike and infidelities, <laughs> then we see a woman from behind in a very lovely dress getting into a snazzy powered launch with Mike Parker and heading out towards the Britannia. Ah, it's Helen King. I couldn't decide if I liked the dress more or the wooden um, speedboat more. It was a tie. It was a tie. <laughs> now, I did like that Mike Parker was carrying her equipment as they walked down the, mm, it's not a hall on a boat. What is it? A gangway? Whatever it is. It's the hall. He's carrying her equipment, which is the only remnant of chivalry he's got left, I think, because he's functionally delivering someone to an assignation as far as he's concerned. And you know... The contrast of this very beautiful ship, the Britannia, and even the cabins that are just, you know, they look like rooms. They're so beautifully decorated. And then there's the hallways that are just tubes and wires and just very utilitarian. The contrast is kind of, I don't know, strikes me every time they walk down one of those hallways. So we see it's the same suite from the argument in the cold open of the first episode. Um, And there is a gross scene where she's setting up what amounts to her podcasting equipment. And the (laughs) guys are being creepy around and behind her. It is just not good. She has to do some technical stuff. And they're kind of looking at it like, oh, how adorable. She's going through with a ruse. Yeah. Like, uh. Yeah. Oh, is that the prop? Okay. (laughs) When he sits down, he sits down nearly on top of her. They are very close on that little sofa. And she doesn't, you know, she just goes with it. I think she is very good at her job because given how women were new to this particular career, um, she's kind of combining flirting. She's using all her assets to try and get the information out of him because she wants this deep interview. And he's just shocked that she did her homework. So Mike departs and they begin. And she starts by asking some hard questions. She wants some commentary on the Suez situation. And, you know, he politely enough dissuades her, you know, oh, my thoughts remain a private matter. That's not the role of the monarchy or whatever. And she tells him he has progressive views. What a surprise that he wouldn't be able to share them with her. And, uh, you know, you have a willingness to change. And he says a very profound thing. Let's just say that I learned very early on not to take things for granted. And so then she gives us a little tiny exposition. Now, we do go into this late, late in the season in great detail. So what she gives you, the audience, because he sure doesn't need to know it, as the biography of Philip amounts to this. His grandpa was assassinated. His family had to flee Greece a couple of times. And at one point, they hid the 18-month-old Prince Philip, um, hid him in an orange crate so they could flee the country again um, because he was in danger of his life. They lived their life 
in exile. And Philip does not want to talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about his mother, who we met last time, who the royal family thinks is just bat poo crazy. Um, he does not want to talk about his sister, Cecile, his childhood, his abandonment. You know, we see little flashes of little Philip throughout this whole question and answer series, and he is very uncomfortable with it and is getting angrier and angrier. I really love those little flashes of flashback that he had because they're lit with kind of a blue light and they look um, cold and distant and they're just little flashes of very traumatic things that are going on. You just see little bits of it. I like the sequence quite a bit. So at one point he asks or, you know, reminds her to call him sir. So it is obvious that the flirtation portion of the interview is over. She doubles down. I think people have a right to know about their leaders, don't you? And then as he flees the room, she is yelling after him, especially ones that can't be thrown out in free and fair elections. Wow. Yeah, she plays her whole hand there, right? Because she knows she's not going to get the information. What does she think? He's going to turn around and say something at this point when she couldn't get anything out of him in the last three minutes? And I do feel for his pain, especially since I know the story, because I'm not good about just staying with the one we're covering. But part of me cannot help being so happy that the whole seduction scheme backfired so horribly. Like, take that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of backs up the idea that throughout this thing, they're kind of saying, you know, did Philip or didn't he? They're never telling you either way. And in this particular scene, they're saying he definitely didn't. No- nothing went down here. And Philip says to Mike, next time, do not let my vanity get the better of me. <laughs> Mike was so shocked when he saw him come out of the room. I know. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> We're back on the ship. It's nighttime and there is a very bad storm. And Beckett, this is how boats behave in really bad weather because the boat is actually, you know, going from side to side. It's moving and things are falling. And one of the things that falls is a collection of photographs. Then Philip picks it up. He's in his cabin and he sits down in a chair as, you know, the storm is just blowing all around him. And he looks at this picture of young Philip who I thought looked an awful lot like realistic Philip as a youngster. Yeah, I don't know where the curly hair went. I guess he's got a lot of uh, manly pomade on it now, maybe. (laughs) He actually looked, the hairstyle from when he was young was exactly like my dad's. My dad had very curly hair and he stuck it down you know, for his work at an insurance company. I think those photographs were probably just tucked in a book and maybe even had been forgotten. And then when yeah. the books fell, the whole shelf fell. I'm surprised the glass didn't break, but everything is all, I mean, this is why I do not, I'm not <laughs> fond of the ocean. <laughs> okay. At any moment, it's going to turn into this whirlpool hellhole and there's nothing you can do because you don't have a helicopter. <laughs> well, some ships do. Okay. I want to say this. On most ships that I've ever been on, and most boats, and even the one cruise that I took, um, things are secured down. They're behind cabinets that lock in place, and you know shelves are not open like that. There's some type of wood that keeps everything on there in case of a situation like this, especially seafaring boats. So that kind of surprised me that things were so chaotic and all over the place. 
that things were flying around. He probably just had somebody pick that thing up part and parcel and just haul it in like his entire little bookshelf of favorites or whatever. He probably literally had two footmen, one guy walking backwards up the gangplank, bless him, probably just took that whole thing right in. And it's probably not meant for the ocean, maybe. Well, given that he has a background in the Navy, he probably knew that. And even if he did and he brought it on, I would just think that someone on the boat, a member of that crew, would strap it down somehow, you know, do something to make sure that it doesn't fall. Because water like that, you know, those big waves, that's inevitable when you're out at sea. That is called an SEP. It is the most powerful force in the universe. It is somebody else's problem. (laughs) I thought in the military they don't have that. No? Evidently, we have just seen at least a fictional representation of that force at work. Yes. And we also saw just as if we didn't understand that uh, Helen had brought up all this stuff that was in his past and was tucked away and hidden (laughs) that we had to see it again. So we know that we got the point. Okay, good job. Now we are back in London and Eileen is at her kitchen. She's washing her dishes and the phone rings and she answers it. Kensington 8953. Hello. But we don't know what it is because we don't hear the conversation. And I have to tell you, I hate that kitchen divider with the fire of a thousand suns. It makes me <laughs> upset. I hate it. There was a show. Oh, what was that show? Army Wives. It was on Lifetime several years ago. And one of the houses had a shelf just like that that divided it. It was like open on both sides. Well, I, it was authentic, right? I'm I mean, sure. this is your area. Yes. <laughs> Well, it was the cake waitress. Um, we see her talking. She's talking to Eileen and she's confessing to her her relationship with Mike. We met a few times in different locations, she says. <laughs> oh, my. And he used to tell her about his work and the people he associates with. And then she says he didn't mention a wife or children. I'm so sorry. Mm. I don't think she feels as bad because she knows this wife already is done and wants to leave. She would never, in my mind, she would never have said that to someone who was crying that her husband had cheated. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I I definitely do. And it made me wonder if this type of personal service was part of her job as a waitress or if it was just purely off-the-clock recreation. Gosh, who did we cover this with? Maybe Clara Bow? The Ziegfeld Follies girls were sort of tacitly expected to be part of the prizes for being a patron. We are so very good at tap dancing, aren't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm. Um, it's not unheard of. I mean, of course, that's a different, slightly different era um, a few decades before, but... Or in, even if it wasn't like on the actual job requirement, if it, like you just said, it was strongly encouraged to keep your job and, I mean, help with the tips. I, it's terrible. It's awful. But as a working woman... I don't know. I I feel for her really badly. And I feel for her because Eileen just goes at it. She's like, well, if you're sorry, you'll help me out. And then we are introduced to the third person in the room. It's the lawyer. This whole conversation is going on in the lawyer's office. And he says, fine, we have our evidence. You have to appear in court. And uh, she backs out. Cake waitress is like, I will not. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my reputation, which is like, okay. And again, Eileen, like she doesn't deal with it very well because she's like, then why did you meet with me to put color into my nightmares? I mean, she's mad. I don't blame her. But did she really expect cake waitress to 
you know, appear in front of a court and give this information? Evidently, she was frustrated and I think she did. But then, like, I guess she feels like her reputation is already in the toilet. Like, who, what, why does she care? I mean, there's mm-hmm. levels and levels, and Eileen is kind of being snotty while assuming that, well, she's already lost everything there is to lose. Who cares? She can show up in court and hurt her any. So I honestly think it is a very classist thing for her to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very entitled. Like, of course, you have to give up your whole life and reputation and job and everything for me. Duh. Well, of course, this conversation quickly filtered down the Telebrit Alliance to Martin, who updates Michael, and the two of them kind of discuss a worst-case scenario. There are just no secrets anyplace, huh? And I'm <laughs> hoping it did not follow that same convoluted path as last time. Obviously, they've set up a direct line of communication with the lawyer. At least if they were smart, they would have. Yeah. <laughs> So they really want to protect the integrity of the royal marriage, and it could jeopardize the whole monarchy. And Michael says to Martin, do you have any ideas? So they're going to come up with a plan, basically. And now, a brief intermission. So we're back. And guess who else is back? Philip is back with his bros. (laughs) Yeah, he's telling them grown up duties are done. And everyone on ship is very excited about that. They are talking about their future plans for the next nine weeks where there is no reporters, no photographers. They are out of the world's eye and they're going to have this amazing adventure. And Mike kicks the whole adventure off with one big contest. It's a beard growing contest, which is kind of a big deal. Um, You know, many men do it every November. Evidently, in the British Navy, you have to have special permission to grow what they call a full set. Nobody in the Navy is allowed to have a mustache without a beard. And that was by uh, rule of Queen Victoria. For some reason, that was absolutely out of the question. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, they still have to have a full set. And it is up to the commander, the individual commander of the individual man in question. Once it grows out, if it looks respectable, he can keep it. But if it looks like, eh, he has to shave it off. Also, you have 14 days from the moment you get authorization to grow it. And if your beard grows too slowly, they're going to make you shave it. (laughs) Well, if it grows too slowly, it's probably never going to come in full enough. But there are some guys on the ship who already have it. And they're instructed to shave off what they have. So they're all starting fresh. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm sure this is like a big deal for you guys. But could you just get a ruler out maybe? (laughs) Oh, it's pretty cute. It's pretty cute. And I actually think I don't normally I'm not a giant fan of these kind of beards, but they look cuter as the time goes on, I think. Yes. Next we see, it's, I'm sorry to say, it's a CGI of the Britannia going through the water. It's on its way. They're going on their trip. And we're in a locker room. It's the massive head area for all the crew. And they're shaving off their beards and they're taking showers and they're getting ready for this competition. And some of them have tattoos. 
<laughs> and there is a gratuitous booty shot. And as the man walking through is joking, I had to turn on the subtitles to hear what was being said. He said, it's nothing you've not seen before. And the guy shaving his beard turns around and goes, we can't see it now. Har, har, the dudes. Har, har. <laughs> Um, the CGI, the sweep around of the boat actually reminded me not so much of Titanic, the movie, though it's very similar. It reminds me of this video game of the Titanic I used to have. Oh, like, I don't know what, like the shadows were just a little off or I don't know, but it reminded me of, of that so strongly. I'm like, gosh, I wonder if my current laptop would even play those kind of old disc games anymore. Oh. Those old timey games. Well, it struck me so much Titanic like that I wrote a Titanic like shot because oh. it went down the ship and there's this dramatic music and it goes down the ship that's going full steam ahead. So while the rest of the crew is getting ready for the beard competition, the Duke's in his cabin and he's staring at pictures of what are supposed to be his parents, but they really aren't pictures of his parents, but we'll believe that they are. <laughs> They're not? I was really comparing the two. The woman in the picture on the cabin that he has, her nose isn't nearly as straight and small. It's not the same proportions as Princess Alice's. I believe now may now you have me questioning myself because I had the, I froze the frame and I had my phone up and I was looking comparing the pictures and Prince Philip's father's face was longer and this man's face was kind of squatty. I guess I have another thing to offer okay perhaps it is not mama and papa perhaps it is his favorite sister cecile and the reason i'm saying that is um cecile at eight months pregnant was traveling with her husband and two of their three children to a wedding and their plane hit a um in in some fog hit a factory smokestack in belgium and everyone on board was killed yeah that was pretty traumatic it could well be Cecile. So we'll have to compare pictures of her. She did have dark hair and it was um, often styled in the way of the woman in the picture. And I must admit, I'm not familiar with her husband at all. So I wouldn't know. But my first instinct was that it was Mama and Papa. But then I started to think about it. It's like he really loved his sister. So mm-hmm. and he was closer to her than anyone else in the family. You know, the father had left and the mother was institutionalized. So he relied on, you know, other members of the family to raise him. So, yeah. Good question. I thought it was his parents too. So now I'm regretting all that time I spent comparing pictures of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Philip's moment of contemplation is interrupted by Mike. He's telling him that the Lord Chamberlain's office wants Philip to make a companion Christmas speech with the Queen's. And everyone's confused as to why, but it's going to go out on the radio to the entire Commonwealth on Christmas Day. One half of a billion people. (laughs) Yikes, that's a lot of pressure. And then Philip said, what if I don't want to? And then Mike comes back with, oh, no provisions have been made for your having an opinion about that or uh, indeed anything else. (laughs) He said the speech should contain heavy references to marriage and family and be Christian in sentiments. And Philip is like, well, that might not be the message that I want to give. So he's feeling really controlled here, and he's wondering if he has any outlet for his own opinions in this situation. Well, he does not, really. (laughs) No, No. even though we're on this fun Mike and Philip's excellent adventure, he has to remember that he's connected to the monarchy very closely. Obviously, the message has gone out to Philip that he needs to make this speech, and Michael Adeen now is explaining it 
to the queen. He's explaining that there's going to be a dual husband and wife Christmas message. And she's like, we don't do it that way. So this is the plan that Martin and Michael came up with. Yeah, uh, I guess the thought is you haven't been seen together, perhaps being heard together. And honestly, she gets it right away. Oh, good idea. You know, he is so skittery during this whole scene. Like, uh, we thought that, (laughs) you know, he's like, oh, crap, my job sucks right now. Um, She's kind of simple. You just have to be straightforward. And he didn't tell her the whole story. I'm telling you that right now. But, you know, she wouldn't enjoy the whole story. No, she he does tell her that Philip's going to have to get up at the crack of dawn because he's going to be in Antarctica. But she's all, all on board. And Michael's like, yes, I got through. And he's walking out and she says, uh, one more question. How long have you and your wife ever been separated? And he is still very hesitant. I can't even explain his delivery. He says that Helen, who I assume is Mrs. Hem, believes that no good comes out of a couple being apart, that a husband and wife belong together. And then she just, she looks at him for a minute. She says, of course, of course. And she gives him such a wistful look. And then he gives her the bow and gets out of the most uncomfortable situation he's been in for the last year, and he's out of there. So, good. It's a great opportunity for Claire Foy to do some eye acting because she's smiling at him when he leaves the room because, thank you for answering my question, and then her face just drops to, like, worry, I guess. I thought she did a good job. Now we see the Duke back on the Britannia, and he has his full beard, and he's having some deep thoughts as he looks out at the vast ocean around him. And then the only Morse code that I recognize comes up. S-O-S. And something is happening. They're getting a message. And so we follow the assorted officers into the bridge where there is some information as to what it is. The Australian Naval Patrol had pulled an injured fisherman off of his boat. He was barely alive, but he needed medical care that the Naval Patrol boat didn't have. There was no doctor on board. The Britannia is the nearest ship. The closest other one was three hours away. So the Britannia has to come about to go rescue this fisherman. So next we're going to see a series of images that shows the crew from the Britannia, Philip hands-on saving this fisherman. They head back from the naval ship, back towards the Britannia. They hoist him up. He's in a stretcher and kind of wrapped around it like a cocoon, almost like a butterfly is going to emerge. And he gets hauled up onto the Britannia and brought into the operating room where doctors in surgical gear are waiting for him. The captain and Philip have a little discussion about how the man doesn't have any ID. We don't even know who he is. And Philip says, he's the captain of a ship. He's one of us. So do all you can, basically, I guess. Get this, though. The admiral is just going to drop him off at the next stop. Like just, okay, you know, you're out of the water and now you're on land. Asta la bye-bye, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Philip and uh, the admiral, who is actually, I believe, a rear admiral, because that's also called a flag officer. And they're kind of going back and forth in the ship's bar, I guess, and talking about, we have to save this guy, bring him back to his people, is what Philip's saying. And the admiral's like, no, we have a schedule to keep. Sorry, we're going to drop him off wherever we can. And he's on his own. And they kind of like have to keep one-upping each other as far as their credentials go to decide. And the Duke plays his royal card. You know, he's representing the crown. It's a royal yacht. Case closed. Philip is the man. Finally, that crown comes in handy. 
Now we're going to see a scene that's very much like that first scene there called open. It's a montage of the fisherman being returned to his South Pacific Island home, some island in Tonga. Philip is watching the whole thing. He's participating and he just has this look on his face like um, I'm loving being a part of this. And I have to tell you, I was dreading to see the other sailors families getting their bad news. And I am very glad that that was not even a part of this show. Perhaps they are from a different country entirely. Um, I was actually sad because, you know, one guy comes back. How many are probably on that boat? Five to 20. And then only one guy comes back. But anyway, we didn't see that. And so I was nervous for no reason. But um, <laughs> but the whole family um, is kind of rallying around and everybody's giving hugs and there's just so much happiness. You know, the whole reuniting after a long sea voyage really got to Philip, I think. And I have another, um, both a 50s movie reference and an 80s movie reference. During one of these scenes, there is a military band a British one. They're playing very well, unlike the one from uh, season one was not good. Um, So they are playing the march from the bridge on the River Kwai, which I first heard during the Breakfast Club as a whistled song. But I can't whistle. (laughs) Yeah, you can't because you can sing. I thought people who could sing could whistle. I think lips are too dry. It is like so dry in here. (laughs) Oh, so you can whistle in the summertime. Maybe. Well, anyway, (laughs) that song was stuck in my head all day. So thanks, British Navy. (laughs) But like in that first scene, um, it's a voiceover by Mike, who seems to be writing another letter. And he's talking about they had been at sea for 20 weeks and they saved their greatest adventure for last and fished a mariner out of the sea and returned him to his people. Very nice. That part is very, very nice. Yes, just like the first letter. The travel log portion of it is really nice, except the fact is that Mike and Philip, and I'm assuming every other officer present, are being treated well, well, is in quotes, (laughs) by the women at a festival. You know, it could be a luau, but I think that luau is specific to Hawaii. So, um, you know, just a very joyful festival where there's dancing and music and a fire and some free spirits. And um, again, we do not see Philip act even moderately naughty. But in the letter, the last letter is, each of us is not a little bit, but a great deal in love. Damning letter. (laughs) Pretty much. And again, like in the first scene, the voice changed from Mike's to the Thursday club reader. Right at the dirty parts. Yep. Back in the Thursday club and waitresses are getting swatted on the butt and look like they're enjoying it, but they probably aren't. (laughs) The Thursday club reader, I believe, is supposed to be based on a man who is called Baron. His name is Sterling Henry Nahum, N-A-H-U-M. He was a real founding member of the Thursday club. He was a court photographer. Hmm. Because at the end, he puts the letter down on the table and we have a close up of the letter and you can see his address on there. I do want to put a little reality in here because according to the timeline, Baron had died the previous September. We're at Christmas time. So he had really been dead for a while. So that's just a little mistake of history there. And just a tiny little obstacle to him reading letters, Susan. Come on. The letter sitting on the table, discarded. It's it's no longer of use to us. We've gotten all of the dirty details out of it. Cake waitress is looking at the letter from across the room. So that letter is now being passed from 
the cake waitress to Eileen. They're at a, a sidewalk cafe, I guess. It's back in a working class area. It looks very similar to the first scene, but I can't imagine that she'd be meeting her that close to Wheeler's. But so it's somewhere in a very similar looking area. And the cake waitress is giving her the letter telling her that she has all the information she needs now. And she lays it on the line and tells her that they're not really on a goodwill voyage. They're on a five month stag night, whores in every port. And then she says, good luck. And walks away. And Eileen has got the letter in her hand and she barely coughs out a thank you. It's like, oh, thank you. I think she's just shocked. Like she had no idea that there was going to be this kind of like glowing, ah, you know, (laughs) type Mm -hmm. of evidence. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's I mean, it's exactly what she needed. Everybody wins here except for Mike. So while Eileen has her information she needs, life is still going on. It's Christmas time. Uh, We cut back and forth between two very different Christmas preparations, one on the Britannia heading towards the Antarctic and the other in snowing Sandringham, which is where the queen is arriving. And the queen, mom, and Margaret, but notably, I think not Queen Elizabeth, are met with hot wine. (laughs) I know. They have it like as soon as they're out of the car. They have it in their hands. It's like, oh, that's lovely. I love their Christmas celebrations. (laughs) And I love the ship's kitchen because it sort of reminds me of my husband's commercial kitchen. And I was just thinking, oh, no, it's Sailors Plus chefs. I didn't know there was another level of language. (laughs) Um, Maybe there's just like multiple languages added at that point. I'm not really sure. Well, I want some of mine now. I, um, I think I have all the stuff, even the oranges. And trust me to have to go to the store to make cookies. But then I have all the ingredients for a random cocktail. But I really do want mold wine. It's the right temperature and everything. So I am a little bit inspired. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure to knock that out today. Oh, I think I could probably do the same. Yeah. Hmm. So on the ship, they're having turkey and ham and sausage and Brussels sprouts. I love Brussels sprouts. It is a very contentious issue, dear listeners, between Susan and I. (laughs) They do smell like diapers. I'll give you that. Yes. (laughs) Maybe that's why. I don't know. Back in Sandringham, there are red-jacketed servants who are serving champagne and canapes. And Margaret was being really affectionate towards Anne. She's like picking her up. This is a four-year-old child. She's got her on her hip. And they're looking at the tree and they're playing around. I thought that was adorable. I love Margaret. (laughs) Yeah, she's, well, she's one of my favorites as of now. She falls from favor a little bit later, but yes. Yeah, yeah. But she's so fun to watch this season, I think. Um, You have to compare the Christmas trees, too. And although I can't quite figure out where they would have gotten an evergreen tree to put on the Britannia, it's very sparse, but it's still an evergreen. And the sailors are decorating it. And back in Sandringham, there's a gorgeous tree that's stunning and full and perfect but where would they have gotten the tree for the boat i think they have to go near south america to go straight down and yeah where they're going is um if you go to argentina and just go south towards the tip of antarctica that's where they're going they left the tropics and traveled through another temperate zone so mm-hmm. it could have been any opportunity if anybody okay. felt like it okay i will accept that So, on the boat, Philip is struggling to write his speech, waiting for inspiration to strike, he says. And, you know, Mike's like, look, I gave you the outline, you know, marriage, family, Christian values. And he's like, what I 
want to say, not what they want me to say. And I have to tell you, this man does not like being handled, does he? And I'm sure that part is very true to life, just from the very little that I have ever heard of him, you know, and his personality. He is not a man to be directed. No. And I always wonder if that was one of the things that appealed to Elizabeth at the beginning. You know, his kind of bad boy side. Yeah. But back in Sandringham, um, Dickie and Elizabeth and Margaret and the Queen Mom are all going into this room, having this ridiculous conversation about geography and trying to decide where Philip is. They're all going to go and listen to Philip's Christmas message. People in this room do not know that Antarctica is in the South and it kills me. And we saw in season one how little education these ladies all got. And this just makes me upset. They're seriously arguing over where Antarctica is. And Elizabeth finally figures it out. Well, if the Arctic is up north and then she figures it out with, I guess, Latin, where she goes, Ant. Arctic must mean south. Actually, she says non-north. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to rewind that several times. I was like, did she just really say non-north? Yes. Yes, she did. This whole thing reminded me like an episode of Drunk History, like the way the conversation was going. Because <laughs> oh, when she says non-north and Margaret's like, what's non-north? <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. And I feel really sad. So luckily, though, for real life, little Princess Anne, the next lady in question, went to boarding school for real and learned things for real. And I'm assuming Antarctica was in there somewhere. So the cycle is broken, but dang. <laughs> I know. It, Philip was actually heading to Gramland, which I was like, oh, it must be your country, Beckett. 1,000 miles south of Argentina. There is actually a Gramland in uh, North Carolina. It's a roadside attraction with fiberglass statuaries. Okay. <laughs> There is a third Graham land, the most important one, in my view, uh, in uh, the middle of Kansas City. That's the only one you need to know, really. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and it applies to all of our shows. So we'll be encountering this Graham land a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you realize I'm writing down right now Graham land T-shirts <laughs> for the History Chicks store. <laughs> Funny. I'm going to make one. Okay, Philip is on the ship and he is in his office, I suppose. There's a clock on the wall. I was kind of confused about this because they said that he'd have to get up at the crack of dawn to give his speech. But the clock on the wall said nine o'clock. So I'm going to guess that that's London time. But OK, how about this, though? Get this. Okay. If it is, in fact, Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, it's Christmas all over the world. But if it is Christmas, then isn't it full daylight at the South Pole all the time? Oh, I wish I'd looked that up. So Philip sits down to do his speech and back in Sandringham, they're all sitting around the radio listening to it. And he gives them the final geography lesson of the show. You have to turn the globe upside down to find this place. Just turn the globe upside down, ladies. But more seriously, he gives a very touching speech about how seeing so many different cultures makes you examine your own way of life and think about the things that you have taken for granted. And um, Elizabeth is smiling and she's really getting on board with this. And of course, Margaret, who you can always count on, says, is that really Philip? Not some sort of Philip impersonator. <laughs> and he's looking at Elizabeth's picture down there, 10,000 miles away from her, 10,000 miles away from home. He says, we are men together, but we each stand alone. And there's a long pause before he goes on. Um, but there... 
I, you see, I'm not fully grasping the monumentalness, which I know is not a word of his point, I guess, but it really has an effect on Elizabeth for sure. Also, 100 points for the sweater. He looks like a lighthouse keeper. It's a good look. I, I oh my it. gosh, I put that down too. That sweater. I love that sweater. Can I put that sweater down as one of my favorite outfits? <laughs> yeah, I think my dad had that sweater, but it was lovely. He looked very handsome in it, both my father and Philip. So, I mean, did you get the, I I don't know, I guess it doesn't matter if we get his point because the character of Elizabeth is absolutely beaming and to the point where she feels like she has to go look over her notes and start rewriting a little bit. Maybe, um, you know, last minute changes, asks her mother. Um, yes, based on what Philip just said. Yes, I have to personalize this up a little bit, I guess is what she's feeling. What I heard was... Elizabeth is listening to him talk and he doesn't sound like the guy who left five months ago. Okay. That's kind of what the point of him going in the first place was, right? Right. Actually, yeah, you're right. So it's like, oh my goodness, he's had this time for some introspection and he's got his priorities set and he realized that he's lonely. And even though he's with a bunch of guys, they could be doing dude stuff every day and he's feeling alone. So now it's Elizabeth's turn to give her speech, and she's sitting in the room with her own electronic equipment. She's sitting at another table, kind of just finishing up what she's going to say, you know, doing some last-minute edits, and they tell her it's time, and she gets up from her table. She picks up her purse and walks six feet. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a whoopee at this point. It's a what? A whoopee. A blankie. Oh, that's interesting. Well, there's plenty of articles online that will tell you what the queen carries in her purse. Lots of speculating. I believe there's even a book about it. A mirror and lipsticks. They all seem to agree that she has either a five or a 10 pound note for the church offering, that she has some type of hook that she uses to hang the purse off of a table that she has to spit into. I only saw that on one, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> she said she'd have reading glasses and a fountain pen and mints. So one of the sentences I liked in her speech, she had marveled that her words are carried upon the invisible wings of 20th century science. I thought that was really good. And then she gave a message to Philip himself. And her message to him was, a very large united family is waiting for you here and will always be waiting for you wherever you are. And he is so touched in a way I did I don't think he expected to be touched. And man, in this scene, does he look like Prince Harry, doesn't he? Oh, yes. The beard didn't occur to me until, yes. The beard, the expression, because, you know, Harry has more of a manly yet sensitive expression on his face all the time, I think, due to his tough past, you know, with his Mm -hmm. his mother and everything. And just um, this this actor as Philip just captured the same look. I don't know. It was a if it was unintentional, it was spectacular. (laughs) yeah it was you know um we will put in our show notes the actual speech that the queen gave the wording is just a little bit different than it was on the show but we'll link you up to that and of course we have to realize using that communication thing now they can communicate right at the very beginning they tried to have that phone call and they couldn't communicate and now they can even though it's being heard by everybody else which probably has another sub meaning that I hadn't given any thought to until just now. Mm. Well, because they have a public life, right? Everything they do is in the public. Right, right now they can communicate in the public. Useful. The so Philip, after hearing his wife give her speech, he heads to his cabin and he takes out that beautiful leather valise and he digs out his note from the briefcase. And it means something different to him now. Always remember you have 
a family. The note annoyed him when he got it on the plane. It felt like a nag. Honestly, it felt like, yes, whatever. Okay, you're still watching me wherever I go. Got it. But now it feels like a hug. You don't have to worry anymore because we will love you um, from afar. Or we'll, you know, love you in a car, love you here and there. We will love you anywhere. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> We're in our final scene now, and Philip is at the stern of the boat, and he is holding on to the movie camera. He's not using it, but it's in his hand. And he's kind of looking out at the sea again. You know, he loves being at sea. It was his first love. It was his first real family when he joined the Navy in his youth. And, um, you know, being on the open ocean is very therapeutic for a lot of people. And he's thinking about it. And Mike joins him and he admits to Mike that he's homesick. Her speech was unexpectedly touching. Aw, yes. So Mike doesn't get it uh, for himself at all. But for Philip, he does. And he does one of those little guy slap things that kind of is like, yeah, man. Yeah, I get it. And he like leaves to give him some privacy there at the end of the boat. Weirdly nice at the end. Doesn't make up for the rest of the show, though. I'm sorry. That was like not working for me. There's another Titanic-like shot as we pull back. Very hard to watch, frankly, on an HGTV because the waves about make you hurl. It's hard to watch. <laughs> a pullback shot where there's like something repetitive like that. Grass or the waves or whatever. So I just closed my eyes during that part. Really? Oh, I think I watched this one on my laptop. So I missed that. Earlier in the show, the Britannia is going from the left of the screen to the right. And now it is going from the right of the screen to the left, which means they're going home. And that is that for episode two. So, okay. So what has this episode done for us? We are well primed for a great reunion, right? Everyone seems to have worked through some demons and now want to be together. Anthony Eden fully intends to come back to work. I'm like, sorry, I left you shoveling that mess. You know, please give me back my seat. Not sure that's happening. Um, Mike's getting a divorce. Can we just say oh, we yeah. can safely predict this? That's not even a mystery at this point. <laughs> now, um, not to be too frivolous, but I do have a favorite dress. And uh, my favorite dress in this entire show was Cake Waitress's watercolor dress that she wore to work. Oh, that one was lovely. The one that was my favorite, we only saw for a second and I never saw the whole thing. So that was what Margaret was wearing to Christmas. It was an off the shoulder fitted bodice. It was lovely, but you could only see part of it. So I'm going to go with Helen King's knit dress for the interview. And I think it kind of reflected how she really wanted to present herself. Like it had a bow in the front. So she wanted to look sweet and, uh, you know, unintimidating with a bow. But this dress fit her like nobody's business. So sexy sweet thing. So I'd love that dress for that. And I have to say, I also appreciate Elizabeth's cardigan game. She's always got the twin set on. And quite honestly, she dresses kind of like I do, which is probably why I think she looks dumpy. <laughs> well, this is bad timing, I guess, because we also want to say what the worst is. And all I wrote, don't take this the wrong way. I won't. <laughs> All I wrote was, we could safely assume that the worst one is on Queen Elizabeth, but I can't bring a specific one to mind. That's all I wrote. <laughs> no. I thought you were going to make a comment because you, you always like joke about how I wear dresses with sneakers. <laughs> well, she didn't wear sneakers. No, but she wore queen sneakers, loafers. <laughs> 
So the only really recurring theme, when it was a major one, that I saw through this whole episode is one of family, like ones you make, like the Sailors Mm -hmm. or the Thursday Club, dirty but still family, ones you break, like the Parkers or Philip's family, and then ones you preserve and keep, like Philip and Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. I have one that was really similar to that. It was about communication broken and fixed, you know, Philip and Elizabeth, Eileen and the cake waitress kind of ran through the whole thing. So I thought that was the communication and also looking for love in all the wrong places because Mike was looking for it, you know, in the women and Philip was looking for it somewhere else, but he realized that there was no place like home and Anthony Eden was looking for it in his pharmaceuticals. Oh my goodness. Oh, uh, you know, all Anthony Eden didn't appear too much in this episode. So I have decided to award um a medal, some orders of my own. I'm going to call it the Dirt Baggery Award. I'm not entirely sure what color the sash is, but I'm guessing brown. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm going to have to give it to Mike Parker. He's probably going to he's going to be a emeritus, I think, uh, if he appears anymore. But he's a bad influence. He's a bad husband. He's even a bad seducer of waitresses. Like he is just not straightforward with anybody. He's deceptive enough that even the cake waitress doesn't take his side or even remember you fondly. You know, I just Mike Parker is not a good guy in this show. No. I would definitely make Mike Parker a Lord Dirtbag. <laughs> and now it is time for rabbit hole time. Um, I have got all kinds of links for you that Susan is going to put on the website. If you go to the main page of thehistorychicks.com, there's a recapery button. Just push it and you'll get a drop down for every episode. So you can visit the yacht, which is now a museum. It is permanently docked. Also, um, Philip's upbringing. I know we're a little in advance of all the details, but if you want to bone up on that, I've got a um, quick biography of him that you can watch. Also, what's in the Queen's handbag? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, All about the USS Winston Churchill, which was commissioned in 2001. Um, A little knowledge about women journalists in Australia, although we were talking about a fictional one. There are many real ones that did some great things. The video I mentioned of Anthony Eden leaving for Jamaica and his wife with her angry eyes. <laughs> and, um, how about this for a little dessert? Ina Garten's recipe from the Food Network for mold wine so we can all have some. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'll also add some um, links to the actual Christmas speeches and a little background. They only began with King George V. The first speech was written by Rudyard Kipling. I know it was only 250 words, three minutes, but I'll give you a link to some background and the actual transcripts from those speeches. And so that brings us to the end of our coverage of season two, episode two of The Crown. Thanks for listening. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you? And tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2. If you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. See you next time.